Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. So we're in Acts chapter 12, 25 through to 13, 12. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. In the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. When they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as well as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamias, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn them from proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elmias and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of what kinds of deceits and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had been happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Good evening. Good evening. My name is Andrew Tran. I'm one of the elder candidates here. Um, so glad to have you here uh, as we are on this uh, lovely September 1st, end of winter. Winter is over, thank goodness. I didn't know what to wear to church today. Didn't know what to wear like a, like a shirt or wear like a puffer jacket, but it's too warm for a puffer jacket, so I'm, I'm just wearing just a a long sleeve shirt, but up. So there you go. That's kind of like an in-between. Happy Father's Day for you, all you fathers, would-be fathers out there as well. Um, I know this can be a, a fantastic time, for, uh, and thank you for spending it with us. If, you, um, if Father's Day is not a, a fantastic time for yourself, um, know that there is a Heavenly Father out there for you, um, that He is the Father to the fatherless, and there is great hope in, in Jesus that we, that we can be reconciled to our Father through that. So please, if, you'd lo- if you want to have a chat with me about that, I'd love to talk about that at the end of the sermon today. Um, if this is your first time here, we are 22 sermons into our series called Unstoppable. Unstoppable is our series on uh, the book of Acts, how God uses the church to change the world. And today we're going to be looking at the first like, 12, 13 verses of about chapter 13. Um, we've spent 22 sermons so far, and the first, um, we're really entering the third and final act of the book of Acts. Uh, you might be thinking, yes, we're almost there. Well, we're not actually. Acts is 28 chapters. We're only 13 chapters in, so you still got to buckle up. So we still got some time to go. The first uh, act is in, uh, where the gospel goes out to Jerusalem. That's chapters 1 to 7. Um, the, second, the second act is for, um, the gospel going out to Judea and Samaria, which is chapters 8 to 12. And now it goes out to the ends of the earth, chapters 13 and onwards to 28. 
Um, a lot still happens. So if, you're, if you've been with us, you would know that, um, if we just recap for a little bit, Saul, the, Saul of Tarsus gets saved, the guy that's persecuting all the Christian, he gets, he gets saved, and then Peter gets us told about this message, that the message of salvation is not just for the Jews, it is actually for everyone. Um, and with that, he gets told that, uh, that he has to now preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, all this is happening while the church, while this is all happening, the church is still being persecuted. Um, James last week, if you were here for his last week's sermon, James last week was killed by King Herod Agrippa I, and then Peter, was, the apostle, was locked up. But by God's providence and by his sovereignty, Peter gets jailbroken. And Herod dies. And in the last verse of, uh, of, that we, we, we finished up on, uh, chapter 12, verse 24, it says that the word of God increased and it multiplied. We've seen so far that the gospel has gone out unhindered and has been unstoppable. God uses the church to reach Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now we're about to see the church, God use the church to reach the ends of the earth. And this week we see again that the gospel is still unstoppable at this, and we see this in Paul's first missionary journey, the thing that we're going to be talking about tonight. What we're going to see tonight are three things. God initiates his mission. However, God's, even though God does initiate his mission, it, God's word it does get a mixed reception. But then God's word ultimately triumphs. Again, God initiates his mission. God's word then has a mixed reception, and God's word then ultimately triumphs. So if you're ready, let's pray, and let's dig into the text, eh? Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for who you are. I thank you that you are a good, good father. I pray that before we even get in today, that we, uh, we thank you for our fathers that you have blessed us with. Uh, thank you that you are the ultimate father, that you have never let us down. Uh, thank you that you are a father to all of us and that you are a father to the fatherless. Lord, you've given us fathers in the church. Help us to be um, uh, men who can, uh, can be fathers to those who don't have some. I recognize that uh, this day might be hard for some of us, uh, but I pray that for your uh, for your spirit to, to heal wounds. Help us to see you better, at, better as Father. And thank you, Father, for your words that you've preserved for us in Scripture. Uh, open our eyes, unstick our deaf ears. Thank you for the power of the gospel moving us tonight. May the words of my heart, when the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So, God initiates this mission, right? Just to be clear, in this part of Acts, um, Christians were already all over the Middle East. It's no secret that they were already there. Um, They were already all over the place talking about Jesus because they had been dispersed because of the persecution several years earlier. And you see the place that Paul goes to. You see them talking about this name of Jesus already. God has already been working in the background in the book of Acts. God uses the capital C church, all the church, for mission. But the ministry of Paul, the Apostle Paul, has a profound effect on the church 
and Christianity. And his missionary journeys, in his missionary journeys, we see him preach the gospel and plant more churches. So today we're looking at Paul's first missionary journey, and it starts in Antioch in Syria. If we get a map here, let's put, let's put it up. And this Syria there, there's Antioch there. And the first the 13 verses we're looking at is essentially that little bit in Syria and then the island of Cyprus. So that's where about where we're going his, history-wise at the moment. Uh, verse 12, uh, 12, 25, Paul and Barnabas have just come back from a famine, uh, a famine relief trip to Jerusalem. And they've, they've come now and they're in this church in Antioch. In verse 1 it says this, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who would have been brought up with, the Herod, with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Now, this church in, Tet, uh, in, this, this, uh, this church in Antioch is a bit of a, a motley crew, right? It's, 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 a, it's a diverse church. There's lots of different people. Now, I want you to think for something for a second. This is related. What's the mission of God? If you know, the mission of God, what God is on about is that he's about glorifying himself via the redemption of people and the restoration of creation. That is what God is all on about. And you'd think that if God was going to reach the people, if he was going to reach people for his glory's sake, he would use the A-team, right? He would use a team that would work well together, right? We here at Sydney North Adelaide, we have a core leaders team. that we, I feel like we work pretty well together, right? We, 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 have, we have good team chemistry, right? No? <laughs> oh, okay, it's just me then. Okay. Then what does God do? It appears that there's a, it's a bunch of randoms in a Syrian town, but God brings together a remarkably different group of people to bring about his purposes. And this is no ordinary team. I want you to think about it for a sec. Can you imagine the friction in that discipleship group? <laughs> you have two black guys in the middle of Syria. Racism is a thing. It has always been a thing. They called one of the Africans black. Hey, blackie. That would not fly in our culture today. Then you have Manian, this lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Yeah, your friend's son, he's been persecuting Christians and killing them all. That's a bit awkward, isn't it? And then you had Paul. You have Saul of Tarsus, this guy who actually used to kill Christians. This group is a bit sketchy, right? When I look at this group, I think of the Avengers. I think of, in the, in the words of Bruce Banner, he says, we're not a team. What, what are we? We're not a team. No, no. We are a chemical mixture that creates chaos. We are a time bomb. And yet, this unlikely group is what God uses to initiate his mission to spread his unstoppable gospel. You see in verse 2, it says this, While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have, to which I have called them. This unlikely group of people were waiting on God to move. Luke, the author, recognizes that God is the one who does the work. Yes, God is the one that has the plans and he can get it done without us. But time and time again, God uses unlikely people to show you of how glorious he is. And it's interesting that God, the Holy Spirit, instructed them while they were worshipping and fasting. 
Don't let it get it twisted. Worshipping and fasting does not instigate or activate the Holy Spirit. You can't coerce God to do anything. You can't force his hand. If he could, he wouldn't be God. God is not like a genie. You don't rub the lamp a couple of times and then you get three wishes. Rather, Luke is showing that God's people put their trust in him. They wanted to be guided by him. They wanted to be submissive to his will. Strangely, fasting is actually not explicitly commanded in the Bible in the New Testament. It was a normal practice, it was, and Jesus expected it to happen amongst his followers, but if it's not a command, what's the point then? What's the point of fasting then? John Piper has this great definition on the Ask Pastor John podcast. He says this, fasting, the reason for fasting, fasting is a temporary renunciation of something that is, 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 that is in itself good, like food, in order to intensify our expression of need for something greater, namely God and his work in our lives. In this case, in this case, God's people were humbling, humbly posturing themselves towards God, asking God to move, to wait on him. And God responds with the plans he had already set out for Paul, Saul, and Barnabas. Verse 3 goes on like this. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Paul and Barnabas were commissioned to a new endeavor. As mentioned before, there were Christians all over the Middle East already. But God used these key leaders of this church for a particular mission. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit calls Paul and Barnabas because that's, that's, like, that's like the two best, like that's the two most key people, right? That's like losing your two best players on the team. That's, that sounds a bit counterintuitive, right? But the thing is, this is God's mission, and it's based on God's timing, and it's based on God's wisdom. It doesn't mean that God didn't care about the church in Antioch, but rather, God wanted to use mankind to reach people to make his own. And God used these two in particular to build, the church, to build up the church to reach people to the ends of the earth. Now, we might look at Paul and Barnabas and think, well, they're special, right? They're special. Yes, they are special, but no, they're kind of not. Yes, they're special in the, sense, in, the, in the case that, yes, they were given a specific task to do. They, you know, they were special in the sense that it was particular, and maybe there was good reason. Paul had skills, right? Paul had experiences. Paul was elite. But in another sense, Paul and Barnabas were not special, they're sinners saved by grace, just like you and me. Luke is not emphasizing that you need to be a leader or have special pedigree or skills or talent in order for God to use you. But Luke is emphasizing that God's people responded to God's grace. They obeyed God's call to participate in his unstoppable mission. God initiated, they followed. That raises the question for us. How have we responded to God's grace? What has it looked like for us to obey God's call? Now, this text kind of, kind of asks, well, do we fervently pray and ask for God to move? Do, well, what, what, does it, what does that mean? Does that mean we do, do we worship? Do we sing? Do we fast? Do we pray? Do we have quiet time? Do we do scriptural reading? And 
yeah, maybe the, maybe the text is asking us that, that of us, but I think more importantly, what the text is asking of us is, what's the posture of our heart towards God using us? What is the posture of our heart towards God using us? God will build his church. He initiated it. But in asking for God to move, do we ask, God, use us. God, use me. Do we ask that? God may might, might want us to make some difficult decisions. I'm not saying that difficult decisions are the goal. That's not what I'm saying. But I see it in three kind of layers in how we obey God in, in, in his mission. And three layers being our personal interactions, our church community, and to the ends of the earth. That doesn't mean that you have to, I'm telling you, you have to go to overseas missions right now. It might mean that, it might not mean that. But even in your sphere of influence, in your domain, whether it be school, uni, workplace, your gym, your sporting club, your, your dance group, your computer gaming clan, your hobby and interest groups, you can influence and share and proclaim in word and deed that Jesus is king. Word and deed. What about participating in the life of the church here? Well, what that might look for us specifically is being in, a, being in a discipleship group, discipling others, being discipled by others, sharing each other's burdens, wearing the burdens of another person, planting out into a new discipleship group, church planting. We are all disciples. And part of being a disciple is that we make disciples that make disciples, right? And to the ends of the earth? As I said, you might not need to go overseas, but my question for you is, might be, what areas outside your domain of life are on your radar, but you're not just giving them attention? You feel me? It's on your radar. You know it's there, but you're, not, you're, you're kind of not really giving it any attention at all. I feel like we all have something like that. God has a plan, and his, he has plans for each and every one of you individually. And he's prepared good works for us to literally just step into. Will we follow? Are we wrapped up by the glory of God that we are more than willing to give up our time, our money, our resources, our preferences, our energy, our efforts, our livelihoods? Be a blank canvas and say, use me as an instrument of your will. Mission, is not, mission of God is not just for paid ministers. God has sent us into our own domains. How will you work the calling that God has had on your life? Or are we to perhaps wrapped up with building up our own kingdoms or building up our own glory or living for our own autonomy? If you're a Christian, the mission of God is not a chore. It actually isn't a chore. It's a joyful delight that we get to participate in because we must remember that God has saved us, God has served us, and God is redeeming us. His love and his Holy Spirit are transforming us to live for him. We no longer live for ourselves, but we can live our hands with open, uh, our lives with open hands towards God. We can die to ourselves because we have found our life in Jesus. This message of hope, our message of hope, our priceless relationship with Jesus itself, it changes our affections, it changes our desires, it motivates us over our selfishness to carry out this message, to share it with others. 
The gospel is unstoppable because it was initiated by God himself. And he calls us to get amongst it. The one thing we do need to know, though, is that although the gospel is unstoppable, and yes, it was started by God and will be finished by God, it doesn't mean that it won't meet resistance or rejection. And this was no different for Paul and Barnabas' day. Which leads me to my second point, that God's word will receive a mixed reception. If we go back to our text, in verse 4 it says this, The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Cilicia and sailed sailed from there to Cyprus. Notice here that they didn't just go according to their own will, but they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. We see divine direction. Again, Luke is emphasizing God orchestrating everything. And it carries on in verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Again, in the Holy Spirit's divine direction, they, Paul and Barnabas preached to the synagogues, in the synagogues to the Jews where they had the Old Testament. And this kind of makes sense, right? The good news first came to the Jews and now to the Gentiles. But honestly, the text here doesn't actually say how effective the proclamation is. It doesn't say it wasn't effective, we just don't know. But what we do know is that they went all about Cyprus, as it says in verse 6 and 7. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, and who, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul was an intelligent man, sent an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Again, under the Holy Spirit's divine direction, Paul and Barnabas come across two people, this Jewish false prophet sorcerer dude named Bar-Jesus, what a name, Bar-Jesus, and then you have this proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now with Bar-Jesus, I don't know if he was, when it says sorcerer, if there was something spiritually dark going on around here, but I wouldn't be surprised. Interestingly, the word name Bar-Jesus means actually son of Jesus, just by that name alone, you're thinking like, yo, that's wrong, man. That's, that's categorically incorrect. And then we have proconsul Sergius Paulus. This Roman proconsul was the highest ranking official in Rome, the Roman senatorial province of Cyprus. Verse 6 tells us that he probably knew that the, that the disciples were going through the island of Paphos because they were would, they would preaching the word everywhere, Right? And he was interested. And so what does he do? He summons them. Now, we don't know exactly what the relationship was like between Sergius Paulus and Bar-Jesus. But what we do know is that the proconsul was a man of intelligence, and he probably wanted to know what people believed. But the gospel message didn't sit well with Bar-Jesus. Nah, it didn't at all. Verse 8. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. See, Elymas was wanting to steer Sergius Paulus away from the true message of the gospel. We don't know his motivations. Maybe it was money, maybe it was close relationships, maybe it was power, maybe it was influence, maybe it was status. But I think Luke is showing us that even under divine appointment, Paul and Barnabas still came across resistance. They still came across resistance to the gospel, right? These two, actions, these two reactions that Paul and Barnabas got 
shouldn't surprise, shouldn't surprise us. It, should, it certainly didn't surprise them. And generally speaking, when you present someone with the gospel, there are generally two kind of options. You have rejection or resistance, and then you have kind of openness and seeking, right? Yes, you can have time to figure out. If you, are, if you are presented with the gospel, you can have time to figure out what it more means and try to understand and try to wrestle, but wrestle with it. But at the end of the day, ultimately, you have two options, acceptance or rejection. And this is a reality as Christians that we must not forget. Yes, the word of God is unstoppable in its reach, but doesn't mean that it doesn't encounter rejection. And as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised when people don't accept Jesus. Firstly, I mean, if people don't, accept, if you share your faith with someone and they don't accept Jesus, um, it's firstly, it's not. You're still on this side of eternity, so you don't actually know if they've accepted Jesus or not yet, right? But again, it's not up to you. Even the, the Apostle Paul, the legit Apostle Paul, faced rejection. The most skillful, most smart, most zealous like, Christian after Jesus faced rejection. It's not up to us if people reject Jesus or accept him. It, I mean, I, I understand. It's, it's, it's right. We should feel grieved, right? We should feel grieved when people don't accept Jesus, but we don't have to feel overwhelmed. It's normal to feel grieved when we share our faith and people don't accept because it shows that you care. It shows that you care. We don't have to be overwhelmed because God doesn't keep account of the souls that are saved by you, Andrew Tran. He calls us to be instead be faithful and obedient. It's a normative Christian experience to face opposition. It should be expected. I mean, look at us. I mean, look at us. Most of us, I dare say, would have been resistant to God and the gospel at some point in our lives, right? And that's the thing. As Christians, we also need to know that God is calling, still calling people to himself. And God has decided to reach people through the primary method of his church. Yes, all of us as a collective, but you individually. And this is a daunting task. Some of us think like, man, I don't want... I don't want I want to share my faith. <laughs> I, I, I need more apologetics. I, 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 need, I need more answers to science and psychology. I need, I need to do more uh, gospel justice and endeavors. I need to know more theology. I need to, I need to be able to argue this. No. These are all good things. But these are the things, these things don't open people's eyes to the gospel. They don't unstick deaf ears. God does that. We are weak and feeble, and we struggle with sin, and we're timid, to be frank. But that's exactly where God wants us to be. And, we, and God loves it when we position ourselves at his feet, asking him that we, to, to intervene on our behalf. And in conjunction with needing, with needing him, though, we need to also rest in the knowledge that people will be saved. People will be saved. Because Jesus didn't say, I might build my church. Jesus said, I will build my church. God can save anyone. And people will be saved. And that should encourage us to persist because it is not, none of it is, not all of it is for nothing. I think the reason why partly evangelism isn't big amongst us here 
not just in North Adelaide, the city like North Adelaide, but as, as a Christian church in the West, is that we don't believe this. We get too focused on the bar Jesuses who, for all intents and purposes, we look at and assume that they will never respond to the gospel. We forget about the Sergius Pauluses and we lack the confidence that God is working in the background and we can't see it. Having realistic expectations will help us deal with the hardship in evangelism because we will get mixed results. But we must also remain hopeful because God is the one who gets the work done in the lives of people. And for some of us, I know that we want our friends, we want our family, we want our work colleagues to know the love and the freedom that is found in Christ. And we fear rejection. Rejection in two senses that. The first kind of rejection is that we don't want people, we know that people, if we, we're scared that if we tell them about Jesus, they, they won't want, want to be friends with us. And the other sense of the rejection is we're, we're scared that they actually will reject the gospel. And we want to avoid that. It's natural for us to want to avoid these feelings. I get that. I experience this on a daily basis. But I, I believe it's okay to feel this feeling. Some preachers say that we shouldn't fear, man. They're, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Christ. And I think there might be an element of fearing man in our evangelism, maybe. But I think it's more complex than that. On, on one hand, the gospel is, if you're a Christian, the gospel is central to who you are. And it feels like if, when you share your faith and they reject it, it feels like they're, they're rejecting not just your faith, but they're rejecting a part of you. It hurts. It cuts personally. It's okay to feel this fear of rejection because it shows what you hold most dearly and deeply. It shows that you care about your standing with people, that you want to be in their lives, that you can be light and salt to them. But the thing is, my friends, the thing is, the good news is so good that it, compel, it compels us to lay down our feelings willingly because we want to share the greatest love that has been ever known. There's always risk involved with the sharing, the hope that we have within us. But we can be confident that God is in his sovereignty. He doesn't waste our efforts. Our self-sacrifice is never in vain because despite mixed receptions towards the gospel, the gospel is still unstoppable. God will always, he will always achieve his goal. And that leads us to our third point, that God's truth triumphs. God's truth triumphs. You see, God's truth triumphs in the text here tonight in two ways. Firstly, the truth of God triumphs over the falsehood of Bar Jesus. And secondly, the truth triumphs in the heart of Sergius Paulus. If we look at Bar Jesus for a sec, here you have a guy who's claiming to be the Son of God. He's propagating this false teaching about who God is. And so, how does, how does this opposition to the gospel get dealt with? Verses 9 and 10. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elmas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? I want you to take note of something. Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul was a gifted evangelist. As I said before, he was elite. 
But Luke tells us he was filled with the Spirit. Why? Because he was a man who knew God and was marked with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke wants to remind us that God was truly with him as he confronted this false prophet. Paul calls out the supposed son of Jesus as the son of the devil. That's a harsh rebuke, man. And he continues this harsh rebuke for trying to stop the progress of God. Paul tells him what's up in like verse 11. He says, now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time. Essentially, you want to stop God? You want to stop God? Good luck. God is going to show you who he really is. And he's going to show you who you're really messing with. Boom. You're blind. You're done. Get wrecked. It's over. Clearly, God demonstrated power over sorcery of the false prophet. And this text encourages us here that Bar Jesus was no match for the God in the universe. In fact, no one is a match for the God of the universe. God is unmatched. God is unparalleled. He has no equal. He has no rival. God is greater than all. He is the name above all names, king of all kings. God has, is complete. No one competes with God. No one compares with God. God is in a class of his own. He is supreme over everything. And this God that is supreme over everything is the one we worship, serve, and adore. But not just that. It's the God who is central to not just our faith, but central to who we are. That's amazing, don't you think? The supreme God of the universe is central to who we are. God will not stand for false prophets making a mockery of his name. Because the truth about God matters. What we say about God must must line up with how God has revealed himself in Scripture. The personhood and character of God is extremely important because the doctrine of God, who God is, that is central to our faith. Now, you might be thinking, Paul, man, you're going to pipe down. <laughs> what the bejesus, man? Like, chill. You just called to do the, the devil. That's, that's pretty hectic, bro. And have you heard, you heard this thing called civil discourse, right? And yes, Paul was pretty harsh. I'm, I'm going to go on record here and say this is not a prescription with how you deal with false teaching. <laughs> but I don't think Paul minces his words here. It's not as if we're talking about some secondary issue. I mean, Paul in his other letters writes that, uh, that people are preaching for personal gain and, and ulterior motives, but as long as Christ is preached, I'm Gucci, man, I'm, I'm good. But that's the thing here, Christ was not being preached at all. And out of the zeal for the glory of God, and out of con- the concern of the eternal destiny of others, of others Paul rebukes harshly. See, knowing the truth about God matters because knowing him, knowing him who is the truth, knowing the real Jesus as Lord and Savior, that releases us from the bondage of sin and guilt and shame. John 8, 31 to 32 says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, God's truth triumphed in the heart of Sergius Paulus. It's ironic that the blindness of one man causes another man to see the light. 
In verse 12, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. It's interesting that it wasn't just the blinding act of, Je- the, the, the act of blinding by Jesus, but he was, Sergius Paulus was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Miracles in themselves are not indicative of someone's authority, but it is in conjunction with the, the word that, that is in, it's in line with Scripture that speaks of authority. And Sergius Paulus recognized both the words and deeds of Paul, and he believed the gospel that was proclaimed. Now, if you, might, you might be thinking now, well, Andrew, if, if truth is so important to our faith, how do we talk about faith with people we disagree with? And this is a complex, multifactorial, rabbit hole question <laughs> that I cannot give you a soundbite answer for. Uh... This example, as I said before, is not prescriptive. You can't just slay people with like, you're just the son of the devil, bro. <laughs> That's, don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> but some factors to consider, I think. I've been just thinking of this through. Some things to think about when you come across this friction. Who are you talking to? Are you talking to a Christian or a non-Christian? What is the depth of understanding here? What are the intentions? In the text, Paul is addressing someone who clearly is trying to pull someone from the faith. FYI, that's a bad motive. And at stake was the salvation of someone's soul. But for most of us, most likely, we're not encountering people at that level, at the bar Jesus heresy level. (laughs) We should love truth, absolutely. All all, scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, right? If someone claims that they're Christian and, and they, but they have the intention that they want to know God better, but I'm a bit misguided, maybe let's invite them to, let's, hey, let's look at Scripture. Let's look at our ultimate authority together. And from my personal experience, when I've come across this, I've always liked to ask, what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? Explain to me. Try to understand the heart behind it. Because sometimes people just have good intentions, but they are actually just a little bit misguided. Our hold and doctrine should be most, first and foremost informed by our text, by our sacred text of the Bible. But in the reality, and this is true for all of us, I think, to some degree, that sometimes we hold on to certain ideas because they're informed by our biases or our experiences, Right? That's why self-awareness is really important when we talk about these things because we, if, we, if we're able to uh, put up our biases up front and say, this is, this is my experience, I know this is, this is why they believe these things, it makes it so much easier to converse about, these, about, about, about this friction. Not every Christian holds the same stance on certain matters of faith. When discussing things with Christians, we need to, depo- we need to determine how important that issue is. And um, there's a helpful article I'd like to push you towards. Um, it's called When Should Doctrine Divide? It's by a guy named Gavin Ortland. Uh, it's on the, uh, the Gospel Coalition website. Uh, just a re- just a quick re- recap of his kind of article. He talks about this thing called doctrinal minimalism and doctrin- doctrinal separatism. The idea with doctrinal minimalism says that like, the primary issue here is that like, like it shouldn't matter, right? The primary matter, no, the primary issue is the thing that matters. We shouldn't matter. Nothing else should really matter, right? It's who who really cares about it. Um, but there are problems with this approach because, all, as I said before, all scripture should be treasured, and secondary issues are actually related to primary issues. 
and it shapes all of life. All truth shapes how we do life, right? But you don't want to be leaning hard into the doctrinal separatism idea, because it, which means if you don't believe this, then you're not one of us. And this can lead to unhealthy separations, and that's why we have so many, so many denominations. It separates us from Christians and the wider church, and it's not very encouraging when you think that you own everything, you know everything, and there's no one around you. Neither extreme is good. Our loyalty is not necessarily to doctrine alone. Our loyalty is first and foremost to King Jesus and the good news. Gavin Ortland puts it this way, as we refocus on our identity in Christ, he will help us toward that healthy, happy balance of valuing all his teaching while still embracing all his people. We love truth here. We love truth here. See, like we love the Bible. We love truth, but we don't bash people with the truth. And I'm preaching to myself here more than anything else because I love truth. But if I'm, if I'm honest, my inner side, my inner self is heaps prideful. <laughs> when I love truth, part of me wants to share, the, share it because I know the truth will set you free. But part of me also, the part that needs redeeming, honestly, it just wants to be right. And yes, it's okay to have convictions about truth, but especially for us prideful people, we must remember that knowledge puffs up while love builds up, right? From Paul's actions, we see the importance of truth because it has the power to save. We see that in the life of Sergius Paulus where he believed because of the amazing teaching that he, saw, that he heard. While we must major on the things that are major on, in our faith, we must engage other Christians with a posture of love and grace and charity when it comes to differences. And when it comes to engaging with non-Christians, even more so, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God, is inherently offensive. But it is like a scalpel that cuts just in the right place. It's not a baseball bat that destroys everything. So since the gospel is unstoppable, since God's truth has the power to triumph over opposition, sin, and death, we need to wield that truth carefully, yet confidently. So, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? The son of Paul's missionary journey went off to a, a real lively start. It wasn't all easy going, and that's going to be the same for us. Living by God's will probably won't be easy. And it's tempting to make a, a, take, a, it's, it's tempting to make a, a, a take-home moral of the story here. I think there are a few messages we can take home. Um, uh, the message uh, such as, since God initiates his mission, we have to posture ourselves in a way we, where we seek and beg and plead that he moves. I'm like, think about it, if, if, his, if, if it's not his mission that we're on, what mission, what's, what's the reason we're doing this? We need to remember that God initiates his mission. Secondly, we also need to remember that our evangelism, our engagement with the world will have a mixed response. And we, but we also must remember that God's truth triumphs in the end. These are great take-home applications, but what I think Luke ultimately wants us to see in the first 13 verses of chapter 13 here is that God is actually at work in the story. He's the one that's behind all of this. I mean, we titled our series Unstoppable for a reason because we see God at work in the mess. Jesus said, I will build my church 
and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Luke wants us here to, to grow in our confidence in Jesus, the truth, the one we hold on to, because he's the only one, that, he's the only hope in the world. And God is still at work today. God is still working amongst us, and God won't stop until the final day. So let's be encouraged that God is still working. Let's join in with God in this mission. And let's give praise and thanks for our unstoppable God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, just thank you for, again, who you are. Thank you for your might, your power. Thank you that you are unmatched and unrivaled. That you're supreme, but yet you draw near to us. Help us to live confidently. Help us to live confidently knowing who you are. Let us be about your mission. Your mission that you are glorifying yourself by redeeming your people and your creation. God, you are so glorious, you are so worthy of all honour and praise. This sheer immensity of your holiness is astounding. There's no one like you. We thank you that your truth does prevail and that we can lean into it. Help us to be good stewards of your truth. Help us to take wise risks because, you've, you, came, because you came down and gave yourself for us. Make us more like you. Thank you for your unrelenting love through your son Jesus and, that, and help us to live by your grace. We thank you for your word that is the, through your word that is the power to save. Yeah, help, us to, help us to live by it every day. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.